Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, the podcast where visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozloff. If you look at where crypto is being used right now, crypto is never really an American invention. And I think that should worry a lot of people because, you know, the past 20 years, in fact, the dominant share of the American economy is in, like, lies within the NASDAQ, right? And we're so proud of our technological prowess as a country, given our roots as a nation and, you know, everything with the Manhattan Project and everything after that. Missing out on crypto, I think, was just such a, like, short-sighted mistake. And I think, you know, the dominant institutions of our time have a large role to play in that. This season of The Deep End is focused on the present economic reality of late stage 2022. The climate has changed and startups are changing their tactics. We'll be talking to the people in the trenches, founders navigating their way forward in shifting macro conditions, and the visionaries providing new ideas and strategies that give us cause for optimism. Joining me in The Deep End today is Ani Pai, an investment partner at Dragonfly, where he focuses on highly technical Web3 projects in emerging markets. Ani believes that progress happens on the frontier, whether it be outer space, the mind slash body, and the oceans. He's focused on using crypto to explore these frontiers and eventually merging crypto networks with analog industries in order to shepherd the next billion users into Web3. We discuss the state of the crypto industry in the wake of FTX's implosion, why he believes the next generation of founders will need to be polymathic in their interests and skill sets, and whether Web3's promise will be fulfilled in the United States or emerging markets, or even a network state slash new country. This episode is for anyone interested in how the marriage of crypto bits with the Warren of Atoms could define the next era of tech. Ani Pai, welcome to The Deep End. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, Ani, this is a great week to speak to you. You're a great guest because you have broad thoughts on crypto and the broader state of the world, but also in this case, everyone and their cousin is thinking about SBF, FTX, broader state of crypto right now. Let's just start there. What are your, just what's your reaction to the space right now? Yeah, no, that's a great place to kick it off, I think. Um, the FTX, SBF, saga or whatever three-letter sort of agency people want to bring into this, I think is a interesting capstone to what's been a crazy cycle so far. And in every industry, they talk about it in terms of cycles, right? I mean, that goes back century or more with the railroad, railroad cycle, telecoms, and everything in between computers itself with dot-com. And crypto often works in these three, four-year kind of cycles, like a bull market, bear market. This market was unique in a lot of ways. I think, you know, no one had expected the NFT craze of last summer and all the kind of schizophrenic capitalism, as like Deleuze would say, that entered the space. And the way in which FTX has played out, I think completely confirms a lot of that stuff where like, who knows where a lot of the money was coming in this time and who knows how much of that impacted previous narratives of crypto. And I know FTX and everyone in the space was betting on FTX being the hope of the West that SBF would, you know, attract the lion's share of capital and kind of save the industry from itself. And he was 
playing all these political power games, all our Robert Moses and all those things. But yeah, in kind of the same way as many uh, heroes' journeys, that journey came to a sharp end as of last week. So, to what degree does someone like you, who's focused on the long term, to what degree do these narrative battles do they matter? Yeah, there's something I think about quite a bit. How much does the events of the present day actually impact the future? I don't think in this case it's that much. One reason for that is if you look at where crypto is being used right now, crypto is never really an American invention. And I think that should worry a lot of people because, you know, the past 20 years, in fact, the dominant share of the American economy is in like lies within the NASDAQ, right? And we're so proud of our technological prowess as a country, given our roots as a nation and, you know, everything with the Manhattan Project and everything after that. Missing out on crypto, I think, was just such a like short-sighted mistake. And I think, you know, the dominant institutions of our time have a large role to play in that. But I'm not too worried about short-term like narrative cycles. I think we have a much bigger problem in the industry, which is where is the long-term going? And I don't see too many people talking about that. And that's kind of what I spend a lot of my day trying to think or like figure out, talk to people, really go to first principles and retrace the logic stack as to like, what do I see the industry being in, you know, two decades, three decades? Like, where do we want this kind of journey to go? And I think we're lucky now in which the downfall of FTX has forced people to reconsider where, where is this all going? And I think we should have spent a lot more time on that over the past few years. That was a great answer because there are three different areas I could take the podcast. I'm going to go down the line and see where we can go. So let's go in or like reverse order. Where would you like to see crypto go over the next few decades? Yeah, that's a great point. I think the dominant narrative of the future has to be crypto being integrated into mainstream physical infrastructure. So crypto started off, of course, with uh, not a whimper, but a bang with the uh, Bitcoin white paper kind of much like Martin Luther lambasting all these prior institutions, right? And kind of nailing the theses on the wall that everything that the government and the, you know, the banks were doing in this interplay post the GFC was just terrible. Like that's not a way to run an economy. And certainly without crypto, it's like, what, what hope do normal people have, right? And I think that's still not answered. Like without Bitcoin and all these things, how can they fight back against central bank jiggering? For crypto to expand in the sort of second decade, you could say of its life, uh, you know, things like integrating crypto into science, into telecommunications, um, into basic, you know, modalities of the economy has to be important. And we can go further into that, but I think like crypto has to be part of the value stack for a lot of these other industries. And it can't just be a way for, you know, venture capitalists to make incredibly high uh, internal rates of return or IRRs uh, much faster than their peers, which you could say that a lot of things in the past cycle for the past three years have kind of just been those plates, right? So there's a famous term in the industry, which is kind of the L1 trait. And, you know, layer ones are things like Ethereum, Solana, uh, Terra, and, you know, these like basic kind of layers that people build on top of. Still to this day, that's probably the best investment in terms of uh, return in time that people see because the payoff is so high in such a fast period of time that everyone piles into these things. And I think as an industry, you have to wonder like, where is that going, right? And how do we integrate those things into things that everyday people use and not just, you know, the Twitterati or the coding class? You know, a lot of folks aren't going to see the connection between crypto and the real world bits and atoms, as you put it, put it in your announcement, Twitter post, 
by your position in Dragonfly, what draws you to this idea of integrating these two things together? Yeah, I think most people are seemingly unaware of the demographics of the world and where kind of most people reside. Like Earth for, you know, in the first approximation is mostly empty. Like most land is not used. Certainly the oceans are, you know, people are not living on the oceans, right? And we have all this empty space. Uh, most people are trapped in these highly dense urban areas. And in those places, like, you know, life gets incredibly chaotic. There's tons of regulatory captures. So if you look at India, you look across Africa and any frontier market, it's like, you know, one or two companies kind of controlling the government. And I think crypto as relieving people from this TradFi financial infrastructure in its like second decade has to go above and beyond. And, you know, as it goes across the stack, I think when, you know, take telecoms for an example, right? So uh, probably telecoms are the most regulated industry in uh, compared to its peers amongst basic technology, like software, physical infrastructure, like telecoms, I think is the spearhead of a lot of that. And so uh, there's a movement in the industry kind of uh, people are circulating right now as to, you know, when we think about what the next narrative will be called decentralized wireless. And so it's thinking about how various companies can kind of partition current telecom providers and break them apart instead of them having this monopoly uh, across America and you know most of the world right now. Why, why I say this is because I think one of the most monumental tech innovations we've had since the iPhone happened uh, a few months ago, or yeah, about a few months ago now, where Starlink said that they wanted to work with T-Mobile to first give everyone across America internet coverage and then you know go above and beyond and give the world internet access. And why I think that's so important is because we have reports put it anywhere between 70 to 90 million people in America who have basic, who have basic or basically no internet access. And, you know, if you look across Europe, right, internet, they claim is a basic human right. And I think you and I would agree that like you can't participate in the modern economy without the internet. And the fact that we've kind of shut people off from the greatest value capture opportunity, uh, whether it be crypto, like basic, you know, web two technology, because of the lack of internet, I think has been a disaster. And I and I think like certainly the next Elon would statistically come out in a place where the internet's not great and where there's no basic physical financial infrastructure to kind of give him that opportunity. And that's something that we look uh, very closely at fixing. This is so interesting because you made reference to the fact that crypto is best actually conceived as a global rather than American-centric phenomenon. But as if I'm thinking about the Twitter spaces, literally and figuratively that you and I hang out in, they're very American-centric. It's very like what's happening in Williamsburg or SF or Miami. So what limitations in our frameworks do you think we have, given how the discourse can be so American-centric when you're pointing out the energy is actually outside of the States? Yeah, well, America has had, you know, there's the Peter Zeon thesis, and for people who don't know, Zeon's like probably the foremost geopolitical analyst, I think, out there today because his claims on Russia and Ukraine timing that perfectly and all of those things. Um, he takes the view that, you know, America, because of demographics and the rex suprema of our financial and tech infrastructure, that, you know, we're going to be like the last remaining country uh, over the century. In some cases, that's true. Demographics do obviously control a lot of a country's future. But, you know, in the long run, we're all dead, as they like to say, right? So it's like, what's going to happen in the next few decades or even in the next few years? No one has any idea in this interregnum period. And the interregnum period between countries is always a very interesting time, right? Like, think about the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, and all the change that happened since then. It was just a crazy time of the Vienna Circle of all the, you know, the growth of Hollywood and chemicals and all those things. 
And I think that's kind of what we're in for. And I think um, certainly America has a great chance. I, I mean, I think we have an amazing chance of being the world superpower um, over the next 50 years. And next 20 to 30, you know, it's, I don't know. And uh, I think like certainly in some areas we're kind of falling behind. And I don't want to make the, you know, there's the biology claim about semiconductors and all those things. Um, that's a whole different story. But I think as it relates to crypto being integrated in the main layer of a lot of these economies to give them this leapfrog advantage, I think that's not being discussed at all. And I think that's going to like blindside a lot of American politicians as to like how we just like letting China into the WTO cause a lot of secondhand consequences and third-hand co- like third-order consequences. I think this is exactly in the same boat and we're just missing, missing it entirely. Could you explain your opener around the global demographics of crypto, just your point that there's a lot of energy in Asia specifically? Mm-hmm. So at Dragonfly, we looked to the future um, in 2018 and said, like, a lot of these other firms are basically only in the U.S. and, like, the entire team is, like, going between the two wealthiest zip codes of New York and Silicon Valley. As we looked at the ecosystem and we saw where are developers, where is the pace of innovation greatest and why, it became very clear to us suddenly that, you know, Asia is the birthplace for a lot of amazing new technology. Look at NFT volumes, like um, exchanges, Binance has uh, the centralized exchanges, like 65% market share, I believe, and that varies by any given day, but it's certainly the market leader, right? And it has been for a long time. And I think that is kind of the death knell in a lot of the FTX stuff that people were hoping for this resurrection of Sam calling him the next Warren Buffett, that he was going to like put crypto on the right path and all those things. But FTX wasn't a market leader by any definition. And like, I don't know where people got the view that he was like running crypto, but that was like certainly not the case. And in fact, I think anyone who goes to like any of these events in Asia is just like shocked by like, wow, people, like the optimism is there, right? And it's like determinate optimism. It's not indefinite optimism that I think like a lot Could of- Could you explain uh, that idea in, ter- in um, determinate versus indefinite op- optimism? Of course, yeah. So there's the sort of determinate definite optimism, which is this idea that people can know the future and build it. And indefinite optimism, indefinite optimism is much like, oh, the future will be great. I don't know how to do it though, and I don't want to do it. And I feel as if that's where the narrative behind a lot of crypto kind of got streamlined, which is this indefinite optimism of, let me get rich first and then figure it out. But that value structure just doesn't work, right? Because the, we ca- the free market should kind of decide is like, if you create a lot of value early on, something like Uniswap, although that tokenomic, token, token economic model, I think has uh, a lot to be improved on. I think if you create something that has tons of value, that's when the you know resources should be allocated versus the, just these crazy indefinite bets on the future that never seem to attract users. And that's something that we kind of stay away from. I think it's like, what do people want and how do we build it? But the role of venture capitalists in the future, I believe, goes far deeper than that. It's not just knowing the future that I think a lot of people do, but I think the role of a VC fund in the future is like actively playing a role in the company and like helping them, right? Like deeply integrating yourself in the weeds because of how technical a lot of these projects end up becoming, right? And one of the biggest consequences I think of the like Elon empire of Tesla and SpaceX will be that in the future, the greatest companies will require founders and investors being polymaths and they can't just rely on some like outdated knowledge that they had like a decade ago. They're going to have to keep learning all the time. They'll have to know all the details, how to proceed over the regulatory calamities that seem to befall us like every few years and just sidestep. 
And I think that's like a great lesson to have that you can't just like rely on past knowledge. But um, it's very difficult to, I think, retrace the logic stack consistently. And I think that's that's what separates amazing investors from like average ones. Could you articulate the difference at a literal level between this polymathic founder and maybe the archetype of a founder we've had since the post-2008 height of Web2 social media space? Yeah, so... There, America, I, I think is probably best to start there. We got lucky in a lot of ways, but one way was this tech wave was happening whether people liked it or not. And I think a lot of people in Web2 simply just rode the NASDAQ train, which was if you had just bought public tech stocks over the past decade, you would have made anywhere between, you know, from 2010 to 2020, probably six to 10x, I think probably on average 8x of just holding public stock. Um, and that's not, to anyone's individual credit, right? On the microeconomy, again, like I said, this indefinite optimism, just, oh, Facebook will work itself out, Apple will, and all those things. Although they're not very comparable, but essentially just the money pouring into technology was so great that you could not do anything and survive. And when we see the future, it's like, okay, a lot of the gains of just being, oh, I'm in technology have been eroded. And you can't just say I'm long technology and retire in five years, which is a classic Silicon Valley trade, right? I'm gonna move here in my early 20s, I'll graduate Stanford, kind of stick, stick around Silicon Valley or SF, work at some fintech startup and like Tiger Global will like, you know, give me a massive valuation and that's it. Um, I think in the future, it's certainly gotten a lot more competitive and the companies of the future, I think are gonna be very exciting because the low hanging fruit like Tyler Cohen wants to say, I don't think it's all gone, but I think in developed countries and you know, that term that has like a bad taste in a lot of people's mind, but I think a lot of low-hanging fruit is gone, certainly, and like founders of the future have to be good at a lot of things in order to escape competition, as Peter Thiel likes to say. So I think crypto is probably the first inning of that, where you can't just be good at technology. You have to actually understand, you know, mimetic culture, which is like all the Twitter wars that you see constantly in the crypto space, or as they call it, crypto Twitter, CT. You have to understand regulatory dilemmas, extradition policies of various countries, like all these things come up, right? Because it seems it's such a global industry that all these things playing together and you know whether that leads to creating new cities a la praxis whether that creates to like reinventing various industries like we were mentioning um you know we see people integrating crypto into mobility whether it be cars like science decentralized science wireless finance like web2 technology as we're seeing with spindle you know kind of reinventing the like marketing attribution space with crypto, all these things are going to happen. And just like Andreessen called it with uh, his super famous piece, Software Eating the World, it's like crypto will eat software first and then software will eat the world. So I think that should be like the unique corollary. What does crypto eating software look like? So software eating the world for those who are not up on their famous tech pieces from the early 2010s is just this idea that you have these industries, they're analog, Uber eats taxis, Airbnb eats hotels. Within that metaphor, then, like, what does crypto eating software look like? Yeah, the number one thing, I think the modus operandi behind crypto and software should be where do the resources of, you know, Web2 actually go and to whom? So the modern organization is like, like you could say, old source code of a time when we had very rudimentary ways of organizing people or capital, like the dialectic between labor and capital was very unclear. And they had to have these very strict boundaries as to, you know, preferred share class, like 
first line debt and all those things. Those are very important and don't get me wrong. I mean, those will be around like way longer than anyone is imagining. But um, crypto eating software looks like creating an incentive model whereby, I know this has been like repeated uh, very often, but to see it play out is very interesting where it's like individual people make a sizable chunk of the effort that they put in into building the platform. How people think about that and how they actually do it is two very different things. But um, it is very absurd to me that the network effect model that everyone likes to bet on, really the gains of the network effect only go to less than 1% of anyone who like actually uses that platform. And it goes to shareholders, it goes to people like Mark Zuckerberg and all those things. But that's not how it should be, I think. Um, there's a model, of, uh, I believe it's uh, called an ecumenopolis, which is this idea of like a one world that eventually of the future, um, this is what we were talking about in the post-World uh, War II period, that there would be this battle between one government kind of taking over the world and we would just have like a one uh, like state uh, <laughs> kind of populace. And then we'd have this, uh, you could say the opposite model that, you know, Teobology, I, and a lot of other people are kind of working on a blending a thousand nations boom. And I think you could define that paradigm as one between regular software and crypto, that actually we need a distributed model that like the best things I think are built by a very small group of people who work very hard and yeah, like, and that's very counter to the general thesis. So like, oh, you know, it's going to be like, this is the way to do it top down and you have to listen or otherwise you're like impaired and you can't live your life. And I kind of present that very fully. So, and I think everyone in the space does, right? I think like, um, I was very lucky, I think, to go to a lot of these, uh, you could say like frontier markets early on in my life and like see the impact of what crypto could do for these people, like people who never had a shot then actually giving them a way to like, you know, make or participate in something great and actually get paid for it and like build themselves up uh, build themselves up despite like all the regulatory shenanigans that governments are doing i want to go back for a second to this polymathic founder idea i've never heard that before it's really interesting to me how does one become a polymath in this context because i'm also thinking of to your point about the low-hanging fruit of the web two era that in many ways we're still within is this whole idea of like dropping out like the joke where you know you get into stanford you get the stanford credential on your linkedin and you drop out because you've actually gotten most of the credentialing you need and then you could just kind of jump into the world and like build a big company do whatever go work at a fang that process does not lead to one being a polymath in in many in a way whatsoever and i think part of the awkward dynamic when you're talking about extradition rules and all these other aspects of societies that you actually have to be kind of integrated into institutions or experiences to understand that. So how do you sort through the difficulties there? Yeah, there's no easy answer there because like this is even far beyond, I think, what regular kind of software founders have to understand to do their jobs properly. In the early days of software, like you could say the 90s and 2000s, like it wasn't as intense as I think crypto is now, but certainly that you had you had those same like mavericks in the software space who like Jim Clark, uh, who, you know, helped build a lot of the modern software industry, just seemingly being good at everything. Like he would just spin up companies and be amazing at recruiting, be an amazing engineer, like could see the future, was very, like had the jobs level charisma and was just a five tool player, like the same baseball, right? Where you're just like good at everything. And uh, over time that has been like weaned off that you didn't actually need a lot of those skills. You could rely on other people for some of that, right? And you see startups now where it's like five co-founders and things like that, and it's like all split, right? What we often see though is that, yeah, it's like typically a two-person team 
like very much like the Jobs Wozniak dynamic that kind of really have like the yin yang thing to take this to the next level, right? And really change the world. So now, because in a weird way, it's our politicians are becoming thought like we're going towards this balkanized model. The world is becoming a lot more nationalistic and we're seeing that retreat from globalization at the same time that crypto is a unit of globalization and that's only picking up. So it's a weird battle between this interconnectedness that we're seeing with crypto and software in general as that like continues to just uh, override everything else. Well, like uh, in meat space, you could say we're fighting back against all this stuff, right? And um, there's a lot of fiscal reasons and financial reasons why I think it has to be scaled back, but it's hard for me to imagine like how we can ever put the genie back in the bottle. And so if we can't put the genie back in the bottle, then the only way to win is to like really understand the world deeply. And uh, that's why, you know, people make fun of like all the crypto conferences being held across the world in these obscene places. Like, you know, just uh, people don't understand why they're happening all the time in all these various places. But there is truth to that. But at the same time, it does show people that the work that they're doing is not just, you know, like American, it's not just European, African, whatever. This is like literally like a unit of globalization. And that's another way to think about crypto, which, you know, if you hold a dollar, if you hold the euro, you're holding a very specific part of the world. But if you hold Bitcoin, you're holding like a piece of the world's financial system in a way. I'm glad you brought up um, Peter Zion earlier. I've interviewed him on my other podcast, The Realignment. I've noticed a lot of folks in tech are interested in his thought. You referenced his point that we are in a period where globalization is retreating. Just like take a step back. You and I are, you know, children of the 1990s peak globalization. What do you think a deglobalizing world, what are the implications for folks in tech? Because it just seems to be catching fire at an idea level in a way that I haven't really seen in a while. What do you think is, is happening there? Yeah, when credit was cheap, and that's been something since Reagan, like Reaganization, the Thatcherites did in the 80s of like, oh, we're going to give everyone credit. The way that they did it was different. Um, that was where it started and where it kind of became was this expedited way of prolonging what was certain to be the financial disaster we're not seeing. It's not bad yet, but... Um, you know, now we kind of resolve all our problems uh, in the world with the U.S. Fed is going to print more money. And it's just kind of like QED, right? Like no problems matter because it's just print more money. It'll be fine. That's not true in the infinite, right? Someone has to pay the bill. And that's certainly going to be like maybe this generation, the hero generation, like they call it in the four turning, right? Like it's the final generation that kind of has to really fix things. And uh, much like the 1930s, like put the pieces back together after like all this ruin. That's one option. The second option, you know, might be that perhaps there's a way where people can exit peacefully and not let it like destroy the world in the process, which is kind of what it's seeming to, right? Everyone across the world is so levered up and they have the biggest, uh, what every economic app, economic analyst wants to talk about is like the biggest uh, short position in the world is the dollar because everyone has borrowed so many dollars in order to pay their basic costs. This is at the country scale that unless we print more money, we're kind of screwed. And so I think a lot of people see that now, especially post-COVID. And it became impossible to bring that up at dinner party conversation with people before COVID because their entire mental model kind of rested on that model that you don't need to think about the deeper questions, the first things, we'll print more money, it'll be fine. We can like, you know, make pet food cheaper and, you know, kind of work uh, a lot of those things out. Um, 
like eat my avocado toast and things like that, which is which was fine for a while. But then now it's wholly different where we're playing in the real world once again, where it's, okay, there's no idea of when easy times will come back. And um, so to your point, Zion, I think, really caught the moment. And I think a lot of people, he put into words what everyone was thinking, which is where, when does the show end? How does it end? And who's going to come out on top? And if you talk to Gen X and, you know, even the boomers, I think they also do realize that they have lived in a crazy time, a crazy, generally peaceful time where they could, you know, you can take you know, like cruises wherever you want and travel anywhere and really have this like, great cosmopolitan life. But in the sense of history, that's all an aberration, right? And I, being in all these places across the world kind of made me realize like the world is not just these like bicoastal trips and, you know, these like vacations that people seemingly take. But in reality, it takes a lot of work to like make things make these things happen. And our like uh, poor decisions in the short term, I think, have imperiled a lot of that. So yeah, there's certainly it's overdetermined, but I think that's that's where Zayon really comes into play because he's been accurate a lot, especially when it comes to what's happening now about the you know ensuing financial crisis and demographics in general kind of proving to be reality. In this last section, I want to focus on your investing role with Dragonfly in your announcement tweet thread. That's how this world works. You pointed out that all, quote, all progress happens at the frontier. Mentioned a couple of different categories the all are invested and invested and interested in. Can you expand on that? Like, what is the idea uh, of this frontier? Like, what are some of these spaces you've referenced? The ocean. This gets back to the earlier theme of like crypto and atoms. But let's hear more about that. Yeah, technology has always existed at the frontier. So the frontier in the 19th century was very geographic. So in the 18th century, it was, really, it was literally like most of the West is generally unclaimed. You can kind of go do whatever you want. We have the long wars between um, America and everyone else. Like, And then as it progressed, it was the Banana Republic and all those things. So it was very much like there are these areas of Earth that we seemingly can go forth and like change things and make that possible as society modernized that became less feasible and so for the frontier this air of the space like whether it was geographic or space in the beginning or anything else that became just taken away over time as like more and more people roamed the earth and all those things it became harder to do that so as i thought about the future it became very clear to me that you know when we think about what are just areas of exploration that are left? It came to my mind that in the very broad sense, there are four frontiers left. So there's outer space and outer space includes all the advancements we still have to make in energy and extended mobility and all those things, which is a function of energy. So space, the oceans, that's an obvious one. Um, the mind slash body, like what is consciousness? How much is there? What can we do kind of in that field as it pertains to the body? And crypto, which is the metaverse. I saw, and I think, we were very bullish on crypto being the underlying substrate that would change the other three frontiers. And if you take the biggest companies in the world in the 20th century, a lot of them were these oil companies. So much so that they started the antitrust uh, regulations that, you know, Sherman antitrust was uh, obviously about oil and those things. And that was about geographic frontierism, right? So you would go to, you know, the Middle East or you'd go to these, uh, like the farthest parts of Russia and find these uh, like places to drill for oil and kind of use that to build a city or something like that. Slowly, as the frontier became, you know, a lot more virtual, that's where the smartest people chose to go in, like, making themselves like the cowboys of the virtual world. Now, 
it's what's next. It's the virtual coupled with those three other frontiers in my mind. So it will be at the final approximation, crypto and energy, which we're already seeing people work on. How do we, you know, think about like creating a better grid system? Uh, like for anyone that's lived in California, they know that, you know, it's like a question of whether or not they're going to have a power outage that month. And there was a time during COVID where it would happen seemingly uh, all the time. And, you know, I don't think anyone wants to go through that or in Texas. And that's the model that most of the people in the world live in. So that's why I think it's very important that we think about the future of energy. Um, so obviously the oceans as well, like most of the world is oceans. We have still have no idea what goes on underneath. And there's a unique uh, interplay between the oceans and medicine that I think people are very much unaware of that we find a lot of cures for, you know, some of the most interesting progressions we made in Alzheimer's have been uh, from fish at the bottom of the ocean and organisms that lie there. And we still have no idea how a lot of that works. And yeah, obviously the mind-body itself as like what is consciousness. I know that's been on the mind, you know, no pun intended, but like essentially it's been talked about a lot in recent times, but I'm less bullish on that than I am on exploring space and the oceans in further depth, so. I think for the last and most obvious question, given your background, do you have any requests for startups, requests for categories? Like what are spaces that you recommend listeners focus their attention on and that you're just looking to see more of? Yeah, I mean, I'll refrain from just talking my own book, I guess, and think about- Feel free to do that too. That's always helpful. Well, Possibly, but I think, you know, the biggest barrier, and I think uh, the way I choose to spend my time is like, what is the biggest blocker that's stopping our founders, stopping myself from hitting the next level, right? Like, how do we change the world faster? You could say that's like a very accelerationist kind of point of view, but I mean, that's all we can do, right? Just try to figure out like, how do we make the things that we want to happen faster? And I think one big blocker for the world right now is just not too many people are thinking about just the future of energy itself. Um, that precludes everything. And one of the biggest disasters of uh, the 21st century has been this mistimed bet on solar energy, for example, um, where, you know, seemingly everyone gravitated to solar in places that it would just not work in order to evade the mop. And I think, you know, as Germany found out and many other countries found out that it was just a waste of money and a waste of time. And now they're reverting back to caveman days of coal and like, oh, basic energy. And the world is the world GDP uh, is correlated with energy usage. And so the cheaper energy we can give people, I think that will have ripple effects across crypto, across all the other frontiers. I mean, that's what I think is the big blocker in getting to the next step. It's not just like, if we can get to free energy the fastest, I think that would have the biggest uh, magnitude of change across the world that we've ever seen. And uh, one reason that we live in this world that we do, that, you know, the cornucopia of like this abundance uh, and these resources exist is because we have like dropped the price of energy for so long. Um, and it's become more intensive. It's become smaller. We have to figure out the next step. A lot of people say nuclear. That's a whole different conversation in and of itself. But I would just like to see a lot more smart people thinking about the future of energy. And, you know, I, I think crypto can play a lot there. I think there there is a huge marriage between the two as to how do you operate energy grids and power generation effectively. But um, yeah, I mean, it would completely change how we see the world. And uh, I, I think that is the biggest goal of the 21st century. So, Very well said. Ani, thank you so much for joining us on The Deep End. Any shout outs that you would like to give? Where can folks find you and your work? I know you're very prolific, so that's always helpful. 
Yeah. Um, they can find me on Twitter, Ani underscore pi, or write a newsletter, dreams of electric sheep, com. Shout outs. I have too many shout outs to give. I mean, that would be hard. Um, you know, obviously we'd like to thank the Dragonfly team, I think, for being super supportive, like on deck for, you know, giving me my start in some way. And uh, all the Anons online who I think are very brave to share their thoughts when not many other people can or choose to do so. So, um, yeah, it doesn't encompass everything, but, you know, I, I think, uh, like, that, yeah, just lucky that a lot of people helped me be here and, you know, trying to pay that back. So, awesome. Thanks again, Ani. We'll see you around next time. Thanks.